This is the word of God, Genesis 25. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. But while he was still living, she gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zophar the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Laharai Roi. This is the account of Abraham's son Ishmael, whom Sarah's maidservant, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the son of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Midsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedemah. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Altogether, Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the land of Havilah to Shur, near the border of Egypt, as you go towards Asher. And they lived in hostility toward all their brothers. This is the account of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth. There were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up 
And Esau became a, a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. And he said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I am about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. And here's what I think we're going to see this evening in in Genesis 25. I think we're going to see this. I think we're going to see that God doesn't always work in the ways that we expect. And yet, we are called to be faithful and to trust him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak through your word. And so we pray that you would give us ears that we might hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A beautiful girl, a Chinese, and a drum kit. That's the story of what changed my mind from going to Greenmount College to Jordanstown. Okay, that's the simplified version. I'll give it that. And yet looking back... I can see God's hand in it. And looking back, I can see how God very much knew what he was doing as he directed me in that way. And from my perspective, I cannot imagine standing here preaching this evening if that had not been the case. You see, God doesn't always work in the way that we expect. And yet, we're called to be faithful and we're called to trust him nonetheless. Two weeks ago, Sarah died. Not actually two weeks ago, but two weeks ago in the text, whenever we were here, we were looking at how Sarah died. And Sarah had lived for 127 years. See that back in Genesis 23. We took some time to think about grief and mourning and how the promises of God should shape how we do that as God's people and how we should live this side of eternity. And and now here we are, two chapters later, and we are faced with death for another time, this time the death of her husband, Abraham. But rather than this being another chapter that really focuses in on death, I think this is really a a chapter about God, a chapter about God and how God doesn't always work in the ways that we expect, and yet we are called to respond in faith. So let's jump into the, the passage together. If you have it, then keep it open. Because firstly, we see God works even through death. And maybe, maybe that's not what we expect this evening. God works even through death. First one, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, and Dedan. 
Now, maybe, maybe if you've been here working your way through Genesis, here's another thing that you weren't expecting because we already knew about Ishmael, okay, the, the son of Hagar, Sarah's servant, but who is Keturah and all of these other children? We've not just been thinking mostly about Isaac. At what point did this happen? Was it after Sarah died? Was it at that point that Abraham remarries and were all of these children uh, children in his old age? Is that, is that how this came about? Or was it that although they only feature in the story now, actually this took place when Abraham was a much younger man? Perhaps he took Keturah as his concubine. Concubine is the language given in verse 6, isn't it? Well, I, I don't think we know. But what is crystal clear is this. These children are not the children of the promise. That's what we see. These children are not the children of the promise. It is not through their line that the blessing would come. No, that would be through Isaac. God has told us that back in chapter one. Jump with me to verse five. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Isaac is the only son of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And so it is to Isaac that the singular line of blessing is going to flow. And yet notice that although Abraham still gives all of the inheritance to Isaac, he, he still treats the other children well, doesn't he? He gives them gifts. And then notice where they go. They head eastward to the east country. If you are familiar with the Bible, then you'll know that east comes up quite a lot. And whenever we meet east in the Bible, it's supposed to be really significant. It's significant as it represents a movement, and the movement is always away from God, away from God and his promises. So Adam and Eve, whenever they're exiled from the garden, they head eastward a movement away from God. And as you read about it time and time again throughout the Bible, you will see eastward is supposed to represent a movement away from God. But if you were to come from the east, however, you might think about that in a pretty well-known part of the Christmas story, the wise men, they come from the east. Well, that's a movement westward, isn't it? That's a movement towards God and towards God's promises. Now, it's at this point when we are told of Abraham's death. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. An old man, full of years, and was gathered to his people. So Abraham has died. The great father Abraham has breathed his last. And like at the death of Sarah, we are reminded that God's servants are not immune to death. God's servants still die, don't they? And yet as we look, we're told about Abraham's death. What are we told? Well, we're told that he died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. Now that is a, a wonderful description, isn't it? An absolutely wonderful description, full of years. You see, there's, there's something different, isn't there, when it comes to someone's life, whenever they follow the, the normative pattern of dying in old age, it's, it's what we expect. 
full of years. We smile when we think about that, don't we? And that's different than whenever we think of someone's life who's been cut off at the prime. And yet, the thing that I think we're supposed to pick up here that is so significant is that even in death, even in Abraham's death, God is fulfilling another of his promises that he made to Abraham. Because you see, back in, in Genesis 15, God had told Abraham this. God had said, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. You see, God keeps his promises again and again and again. We've seen that through Genesis, haven't we? God keeps his promises, every single one, even in death. But there's something else, because right at the end of verse 8, it says this, he was gathered with his people. He was gathered with his people. You see, the Bible is consistent when it speaks about death. The Bible consistently says that death is not the end. That's what it says. Abraham may have breathed his last, and yet it's then that he's gathered to his people. I don't think it's talking about being buried alongside Sarah at this point. I don't think it really makes much sense, given that she's the only one. But rather here, what I think it's saying is, there is a moment whenever you will breathe your last here on this earth, and yet that is not the end of the story. Your spirit is gathered then with your people. We see the, the very same phrase done in verse 17. Glance with me if you have a Bible there. When it talks about Ishmael, he too breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And we know that Ishmael was not one of God's people. And yet death was not the end for Ishmael. But he was gathered. He was gathered. Just not to the same people as Abraham. Abraham would have been gathered with God's people, the people of faith. Ishmael was gathered with the other people, the people who walk away from God and reject God and reject God's promises. Genesis 25 tells us this life is not all there is. This life, it's not all there is. And so this evening, I wonder, do you realize that? I wonder, do you realize that this life is not all there is? This life, the, the moment between you take your first breath and your, your last breath, that's not all there is. It's not all there is. There is a life to come. And after you breathe your last breath and die, you will be gathered with your people. The people of faith, God's people, or those who reject God. The people who have trusted in the promises of God, or those who have rejected God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what we read in Galatians, isn't it? Abraham was gathered with the people of God because he believed God. He believed what God said, and he trusted in God to save him. He didn't, no, he didn't try and do it himself. No, he trusted in God to save him. And so I wonder, is that you this evening? Are you putting your trust in God to save you? Are you putting your trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who can save you from your sin? Is that your story this evening? If this evening you were to go home and breathe your last breath, would it be that you would be gathered to the people of God or those who reject God? 
Second thing I want us to see is this. God works through unusual circumstances. Just look at the difference in the, in the two sons set before us at this point. We have Isaac and we have Ishmael. Now, what do we know already? Well, God had said that it would be through Isaac that he would bring about his blessing. It would be through Isaac that the promises made to Abraham would continue. Promises such as, I will make you a great nation. And yet, when we look at the two lines, the chosen line and the non-chosen line, it looks like, well, it looks like everything's gone a bit ski-whiff, doesn't it? Because when it comes to being a father of a great nation, it seems like Ishmael is the one who's winning. I mean, glance down, you'll see that. It looks like he's the one who's well on the way. In fact, we're told that Ishmael has 12 sons, right? 12 sons. So infertility is not an issue for Ishmael, is it? He seems to have no trouble at all conceiving. There are kids galore. There's children everywhere, isn't there? And yet compare that with the story of Isaac. Isaac has married Rebekah, the very girl that God had led him to and picked out specially for him in chapter 24. We thought about that last week. The one through whom God was going to work out his promise of a great nation. And yet, yet, here again, we come up against a problem, don't we? And the problem is the same problem that had taken up so much of the story for Abraham and Sarah. Because we're told that Rebecca was not able to conceive. Year after year passed, and there was no children. And so it's hard, isn't it? Hard for this couple as we look at it. And yet Ishmael's story is so different, isn't it? Ishmael, not a man of faith. He makes no claim to the promises of God. He's a pagan man to all accounts. A man who rejects God, and yet, it looks like everything's going so well for him, doesn't it? It looks like everything's going well for Ishmael. And here's Isaac and Rebekah, God's chosen people, singing, and they're seeking to bring about covenant children, and yet it is a real struggle. Now, whether your struggle is infertility or not, you know what it's talking about here, don't you? Because isn't that often how it seems to be? For those who reject God, things look like they just seem to go fine. The wicked seem to prosper. And those who are seeking to live faithfully, well, it looks like, looks like things are much more of a struggle, doesn't it? I mean, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. And so we cry out to God and we ask God, I mean, God, why? Why do you do it like this? As you rule over all things, why work like this? That's strange, isn't it? God works in strange ways. And yet, we're called to be faithful. Look at how Isaac has learned from the mistakes of his father. Remember whenever Sarah and Abraham found themselves unable to conceive? Abraham took things into his own hands. He slept with Sarah's servant, Hagar, in order to bring about a child. Maybe an accepted practice in the culture of the day, and yet it was not a faithful way for God's people. And if you re remember back, you'll know the deep pain that's brought about as a result of them wandering off path, off the path of faithfulness. But you might also remember the name of the baby that was born to the servant Hagar because the name was Ishmael. 
Now, what does Ishmael mean? Ishmael means God hears. And Ishmael, as he ran about the house of Abraham and Sarah, was a constant reminder to Abraham and Sarah that they, of what they should have done. They should have brought it to God in prayer because God is the one who hears. Well, it seems that growing up with an older brother called Ishmael, the message was not lost on Isaac, was it? Because whenever his wife cannot conceive, what does he do? Does he try and take it into his own hands? No. This time, Isaac prayed to the Lord. Do you see that in verse 21? Isaac prayed to the Lord. Now, Isaac got married whenever he was 40 years old. Do you see that in verse 20? And if you glance down at verse 26, you'll see that when these twins are born, he is 60 years old. That's a 20-year period in between, isn't it? 20 years of waiting. 20 years, presumably, of praying. You see, God hears, doesn't he? God answers prayer, and he answers in his perfect timing. He answers in his way. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says not yet. And sometimes he answers by doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. Maybe you're here this evening and you're a Christian, a child of God, and you're going through a particularly difficult time, a really hard time, a time of waiting, a time of praying. Well, you need to know that God hears, and the God of the Bible is well able to answer. In fact, He, he will answer. He will answer in such a way that all things will work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. You can be sure of that. So don't wander. Don't wander off the track of faithfulness. But rather keep coming back to God in prayer. In fact, if you're going through a particularly difficult time this evening, I'd say take encouragement as you read through Genesis 25. Take encouragement from the fact that it's often through these very circumstances, these difficult circumstances that God chooses to work in the most significant of ways. Now, in this case, what happens? God answers the prayer of the husband, answers the prayer of the husband in the way that he had hoped, even if the timing is not quite what he, I'm sure, had hoped. And finally, Rebecca falls pregnant. But look at the very next line. Because after 20 years of longing, 20 years of longing, the very first thing that we're told is of the struggle that the pregnancy brings. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Again, I think what we can see here is a pattern, okay? A pattern when the very thing that we long for, thinking that it might settle our hearts, well then, when it comes about, actually, it can often bring its own struggles. You know, when you're longing for a child, you don't much think about the, the anxiety or the pain that might come about as a result. When you long for a husband or wife, you, 
You don't really think of the marital struggles that may come about. When you long for that dream house, you don't think much about the pressure that the, the extra mortgage might bring about, the tension in the family as a result, the neighbors who may live next door and make your life an absolute misery. You often don't think about those things, do you? And so I think that there's actually a, a lesson here about contentment, isn't there? Oh, yes, we're to come to God, we're to cry out to God, we're to plead with God at certain times, absolutely. But we're to also trust God. Trust God that he knows what he's doing. And it also reminds us that we need to find our fulfillment only in Christ because he is the only one that will truly satisfy our deepest longings. Nothing else can fill that hole in our lives. Let's get back into the the text because this was no ordinary movement in the womb. Maybe it kind of gets lost in translation uh, as to just how difficult this pregnancy actually was. Perhaps we read that the children struggled and we kind of imagine uh, the wife saying to her husband, come and put your hand on my tummy and you can feel them kick. Isn't that nice? And they're all smiling, okay? But no, no, this is not what this is. The Hebrew word, word that's translated as struggle in, in our text here this evening is, is really strong, right? It's, it's more like crushed or bruised, okay? That, that's what the text is really saying. So there's a battle in the belly, so much so that she goes back to God, the God who brought about this miraculous conception, miraculous in the sense that her womb seemed to be dead, and yet God brought about new life into it. Isn't that a a picture of the gospel itself. But she goes to God and she asks, why, why, why this type of pregnancy? What's going on? And so God speaks to her, and this is what God says, verse 23, two nations are in your womb, two peoples within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, what's going on here? Well, two nations... So we've got two nations, that's the Edomites and the Israelites. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. The Israelites are from Jacob, later to be known as Israel. And so inside her tummy, we have twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And even before their birth, God says that one will be stronger than the other and that the older shall serve the younger. Now, this is is not what we expect, okay? Maybe it is because we know the story this evening. Maybe you've heard the story many times before, and so you're like, ah, it is what I expect. Well, it's not what we should expect, and certainly if we know the culture of the day, this is like a, like a slap in the face because we expect the younger to serve the older. That's the cultural norm, okay? That's the cultural norm. But God doesn't always work in the ways that we expect, does he? No, here he, he reverses the cultural norms. Here he says that the, the last shall actually be first. Again, a little pointer to the kingdom of God and how God's kingdom is different than the kingdom of the world. And if you're familiar with the God of the Bible here tonight, well then, you will know that we often talk about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, isn't it? Isn't that what we say? But as we look here, we see this should not be the case. We should say Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But we don't say that. Why? Why don't we say well, why not Esau? If we jump to Romans 9, Paul tells us, 
And he says the only reason is this. The only reason that it's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is because that is whom God chose to show mercy to. Here were twin boys inside the same mummy. They have the same father. They have not yet been born. They have done nothing to deserve being chosen as one of God's people. And yet, God chooses Jacob. It's as if here we have a a science experiment. And the key variable conditions are all kept the same. All kept the same, and yet, one God chooses to show mercy to you, and the other he does not. This is a a difficult doctrine. We we use that big word, doctrine, the doctrine of election, how God chooses to save some and rescue some. Some people find that difficult. And in some senses, it's a mystery, and we just have to hold up our hands and say this. We don't understand it, and yet, this is what we see in the text, isn't it? But rather than being a stumbling block, a doctrine that we find difficult and push up against, I think what we're supposed to see is how incredible God is that he would choose to save anyone. And that's supposed to leave us in awe, isn't it? Because the reality is, as we get to see these two boys later on, none of them deserve to be saved, do they? No, none of them deserve to be part of God's kingdom. And yet, God in his grace welcomes Jacob in. He chooses to bring one in. And isn't that God's place to do that? Isn't he God? Cannot he choose whom he brings from spiritual death to spiritual life and brings into his kingdom? And if you're a Christian this evening, think about this. You should not feature either the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jeff or you, you fill in, your bl- in the blank. I mean, we should not feature there, should we? What we deserve, what I deserve, is only the wrath of God. That's what I deserve, and yet God works in ways that we don't expect, doesn't he? He brings people into his family, and that is good news. And the third thing I want us to see in this passage is that although God is sovereignly ruling, we must respond in active faith. Maybe after thinking about this big doctrine, the doctrine of election, God chooses to save. You might think, well, do you know, why should I do anything? Sure, God's going to work and just do whatever he wants anyway. But what we see in the Bible is that God's sovereign choice and human responsibility, they, they don't run in opposing directions. Now, having a high view of God's sovereignty in no way, in no way eliminates, eliminates human responsibility. And so what we have here is a worked example for us. And Jacob and Esau. And so let's have a little look at it. You probably know the story because it's a story that involves stew. And if you're like me, you like Irish stew, okay? But just in case you're starting to, you know, I don't know, get all excited about the stew and the smell of stew, let's not get distracted by the stew, okay? Because there's some really key truths that we want to see here this evening. We're told that Jacob was cooking up a stew when Esau comes in from the field, and he is absolutely exhausted, okay? And so Esau says to him, let me eat some of that stew, for I am exhausted, okay? Jacob, what does he do? Well, he sees the opportunity to get his hands on the family birthright. 
And let's just say right at the outset, Jacob does not come across well in this, okay? But let's just leave it there. But, but the, the birthright was really significant, okay? It signified the status of the firstborn. It signified the headship of the family. And here, given the, 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 the promises that were given to Abraham, it also signified the grace and blessing of God. Now, we can get into all sorts of discussions about Jacob here. Was he right to put his brother into such a position when he was vulnerable, okay? All of that kind of stuff. Well, that's not where the text goes, okay? Because the text rather focuses on the foolishness of Esau. So what happens? Well, Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau's response, I'm about to die. What good's a birthright to me? So Jacob says, well, swear to me now. In other words, let's make this a legal agreement, okay? It's binding, verses 33 and 34. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. (laughs) Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Does this sound like a man who was at near death? No, it doesn't, does it? It doesn't sound like that at all, okay? He just eats, he rises, he goes in his way, happy as Larry. So let's not um, attack Esau for a little bit of hyperbole, okay? Maybe that's where we're going. You know, who hasn't got to 10 o'clock tea time and said, for I am famished, (laughs) you know? You haven't got the dinner time in the evening and said, I am exhausted, I'm at the point of death. Okay, maybe you're much less dramatic in your houses, but... I mean, we could say this kind of thing. Exaggeration is fine for effect, but the problem is that Esau is actually willing to give up something of eternal significance for a bowl of stew. That's what we see here, isn't it? He trades eternal life for a bowl of tasty stew that's going to quickly come to an end. He sacrifices permanent blessing for fleeting satisfaction. That's what we read, isn't it? That's what this little section shows us. Here is Esau, and he's rightfully entitled to the birthright, but he trades it for a momentary pleasure. And here the birthright points to the covenant promises of God, and yet Esau doesn't care. He doesn't give a hoot, does he? No, the promises of God are are not held up or cherished, but rather they are despised and rejected. Hebrews, we, we read about Esau and, and his actions, and this is how Hebrews, a uh, book in, in the New Testament, uh, summarizes what he, what he does. It says, he chose unholiness. He chose unholiness. In other words, when he looked at how God called him to live, he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want. And so he went off in his own way. It was his own choice, wasn't it? Now, tonight we've had the privilege of witnessing the baptism of baby Isaiah, marked out with that covenant sign. Wonderful, isn't it? Covenant sign for believers and their children. An act of obedience to the word for Christian parents, but also a means of grace for the child. What do we mean by that? Well, here's one of the ways that it's a means of grace. One of the ways it's a means of grace is that this is a sign that has been placed on Isaiah, that he can be pointed back to, pointed back to and said, look, here's the promises for God's people. So you must trust and obey. You must respond in faith. 
And so, as a church family, that's one of our jobs. We're going to constantly point him back and say, look to your baptism, live it out, respond in faith. And to Ian and Aaron, that's your job, isn't it? You're going to constantly point him back and say, look to your baptism, not as an act that saved you, but look to your baptism and see how it calls you to live out in faith, responding in faith. We can't save him. Only God can save him. But we can point him to the promises. Just because you're baptized into the visible family of God doesn't mean that you're part of God's people. Because you could be like Esau, couldn't you? You could be like Esau, hearing about the God of Abraham and Isaac, benefiting from all of the blessings of living right up close to God's people, almost as if you get a a little taste of it, and yet, only to despise it, only to reject it, only to turn your back upon it. I wonder if you're here this evening, maybe you Maybe you used to be part of a church family. Maybe, maybe the family that you were brought up in was a Christian family. You've, you've tasted, and yet, at the moment, your life looks like you have rejected everything that you were told. If that's the case, this is a warning. Look at Esau and respond in faith. Whether you've been baptized or not this evening, it's not really the question I have. But my question is this. Are you responding in faith? to the good news of the gospel, the good news that only Jesus can save you from your sin. Is that what you're trusting in this evening? When you die, will you be gathered like Abraham with God's people? If not, then tonight's a night to to make a change and to follow after Christ. God doesn't always work in the ways that we expect. And maybe... Maybe at the moment as you look at your life, you think, yeah, I would never have chosen this path. And yet we are called to respond in faith, trusting God. Let's pray that God will help us to do that now. Father God, as we look at our lives, Often we find ourselves in the place that we might not have hoped to be in. We might not have longed to be at this point. And yet, we are thankful that you're in control. Our suffering is not purposeless. You're at work, even through it, even through death. So Father, help us to remain faithful to you even when the temptations may lead us along different paths. Lord, for all of us this evening, might we leave trusting in Christ for our salvation, living with him as our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.